Good Sunday morning, everyone. As we continue in our walk through 1 Corinthians, today we begin in the middle of chapter 15. In the last half of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul answers questions that all of us have about eternal life and what that really means. What will happen to us on the day the Lord returns to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new? What will our resurrection body be like? Please bow with me for prayer. O Lord, we come to you this day expectantly, wishing we could be together again, but at the same time thankful for what you provided us Thank you for the souls that we miss and for the opportunities that we have to still connect. We pray that you would minister to us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would allow us to see how faithful you are and how encompassing your plans for us are. Because you have saved us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes and ears and speak to our hearts. O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 35 through 49 of our text today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul zeroes in on the nature of the resurrection body. What's important for us to remember is that the culture of these people we're reading about utterly despised the very idea of anybody's body being raised from the dead. Why? Because first century Greeks believed that the body was the source of urges and passions from which people looked forward to escaping when they died. Greek philosophers denied the immortality of the body, but taught the immortality of the soul. The material body, then, was looked at as basically evil, and so gone forever at death, while the soul of a person was basically good and everlasting. Another hurdle these people had to get over was the idea that the body's decomposition once dead, was so horrifying and ugly that they would continually ask, how can such a body be raised if it's obviously dead and decaying like this? This is one of the reasons Paul has to devote so much attention to this topic in this letter. He has to correct these false assumptions by making a compelling case that God will indeed raise the Christian's body after death. How he does that is very interesting. First, since the Greeks thought of themselves as a very wise people and were proud of that, Paul chides them for being foolish in verses 35 through the beginning of verse 36. You know, fools fail to think even when all the facts are self-evident and plain. And why are they foolish? Because, as Paul will show, there are several common-sense analogies obvious to everyone 
which illustrate the very thing the Greeks didn't think was possible, a bodily resurrection. Well, Paul certainly gets their attention by the way he starts off here. Second, he's writing to professing Christians. So in verses 36b through 41, he argues that God is certainly able to raise the body from the dead, and his power is seen by everyone in plants coming from seeds, in the variety of bodies present in the natural world, human beings, animals, birds, and fish, and in the splendor of earthly and heavenly bodies. Third, in verses 42 through 49, Paul contrasts our present body with the future body. This is mainly a contrast between the weak, corruptible present body and the future glorious, incorruptible body. Please follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In verses 36b through 41, Paul argues that God is certainly able to raise the body from the dead, and his power is seen by everyone. The first example in verse 36b through 38 comes from the process of planting and harvesting, something most everyone, especially in the ancient world, was very familiar with, sowing seed. When a seed is planted in fertile soil that has sufficient moisture and the right temperature, it germinates, a process calling the seed to disintegrate, giving birth to the new life form of a developing plant. On the one hand, the seed that is sown dies in the ground before it sprouts with life. And on the other hand, the plant that rises out of the soil has a different body from the seed that was sown. The seed that dies in the ground is raised in a transformed body, the plant. The same is true of the resurrection of the dead. The Christian who dies will be raised alive, but changed into a new form. Are we able in and of ourselves to make a seed germinate and bring a plant to life? No, that's God's work. We sow. That's about it. In verse 36b through 38, we read what Paul says, how he puts it. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. God gives us seeds, and he determines what these seeds will become upon germination. Obviously, there is an immeasurable diversity of kinds or types of plant life in the world. The second example Paul gives to show the power of God, which is so evident in the world he created, is in the variety of different bodies present in the natural world. Human beings, animals, birds, fish. In verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So, just as there is immeasurable diversity in the kinds or types of plants in the world, so there is immeasurable diversity in human beings, animals, birds, fish. God has placed human beings above all the other creature categories, as Genesis says. 
So shouldn't we expect then that God has the power to and is able to give men and women transformed and glorified bodies? He's obviously laying the groundwork here for the rest of what he has to say. The third example of God's power in his created world is in the splendor of earthly and heavenly bodies. In verses 40 and 41, we read, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Like the examples already listed, Paul again refers to the immeasurable diversity in the world God created and sustains. The point here is the splendor each kind of body exhibits. God creates all things and then gives each of them a uniqueness and particular splendor appropriate to their God-given purpose and design. In other words, the God who has endowed the creatures and entities with such uniqueness, diversity, and splendor is certainly able to and has the power to raise the dead. In verses 42 through 49, Paul gives us eight verses full of contrasts. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. First, in verses 42 through 44, are contrasts between the weak, corruptible present body and the glorious, incorruptible future body. Paul says in verse 42 that he will apply the examples or illustrations already given to the resurrection. 
He says, so it it is, or so is it, with the resurrection of the dead. One thing to notice throughout this paragraph is how there is both continuity and discontinuity between this life and life in the age to come. Continuity, since it's the same person, but discontinuity in the nature of the resurrection body. In verse 42b, through the first part of verse 44, the words sown and raised are used in pairs four times each. Therefore, we see four contrasts. The first contrast is the body that is sown is perishable. In other words, it will die and decay or dissolve. The body that is raised is imperishable. It will last throughout eternal life, forever. Second contrast, the body is sown in dishonor. It's not intrinsically or essentially evil as the Greeks taught, but it is dishonorable due to its corruptibility and weakness. The resurrection body, in contrast, is raised in glory and so will never suffer any weakness or frailty or loss of function. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. A third contrast. The body is sown in weakness. Our bodies now are beset, obviously, with all sorts of problems. Illness, injuries, tiredness, infections, disease, loss of function, and finally death. But the resurrection body is raised in power and will go from strength to strength. The fourth contrast. The body is sown a natural body. What does Paul mean here? The word used here describes what all people possess when they're born into this world as sons and daughters of Adam. We're bound by time and space. When a person becomes a new believer in Christ, they are immediately indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But they will not immediately be given a spiritual body. That will not happen until the end when they are raised with a spiritual body. A spiritual body does not mean an immaterial body, a ghost, or a phantom. Instead, it means a body empowered and given life by the Holy Spirit. It is physical. There are characteristics that identify you But in contrast 
to your earthly physical body, it is designed by God to live in the whole new realm of eternity in God's presence. Last, in the second part of verse 44 through verse 49, Paul describes the contrast between Adam and Christ. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Notice that as Paul contrasts Adam and Christ, the natural and the spiritual, and the earthly and the heavenly, he once again emphasizes to a great degree that there is a time interval and sequence between the two. Don't forget what Paul is saying here when he says there is also a spiritual body in the last part of verse 44. Again, this does not mean an immaterial body, ghost or phantom, but a body empowered and given life by the Holy Spirit that is physical and has characteristics that identify you. And in contrast to your earthly physical body, it, this one is designed by God to live in the whole new realm of eternity in God's presence. In verses 45 through 46, Paul writes, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. First comes the natural body, then the spiritual resurrected and transformed body. The first Adam is contrasted with the last Adam, Jesus Christ. This is not the first time Paul has drawn a parallel between Adam and Christ. Back in verses 21 and 22, Paul laid the groundwork for what he's doing in our passage today. There he writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Something else that is important to note, 
Paul goes back to Genesis to start building our whole understanding of creation, the fall, redemption, and resurrection. Adam was a literal man. Adam is the first human who, through God's creative power, became a living being. Literally, being means soul. Both Adam and Christ are representative heads. Adam is the head of humanity, and Christ is the head of his redeemed people. Believers receive their physical body through Adam and will receive their resurrected, made-for-eternity, transformed bodies through their resurrected Lord, who Paul describes as being a life-giving spirit. Jesus had a physical body which died on the cross, received from Adam, but conquered that death by fulfilling mankind's original mandate to live a perfect life in obedience to the Father. That means that in Christ, those that belong to him are given life after death through his life-giving spirit. So why does Paul emphasize the sequence of first the physical and then the spiritual? He has to correct the thinking of those Corinthians who denied his teaching about the resurrection by totally spiritualizing it. It's what they were doing. In other words, they were denying a physical bodily resurrection and saying it was a soul-only resurrection. Remember the Greek thinking of only the soul or spirit going on after death. By mentioning the physical and resurrected transformed bodies of Adam and Christ, Paul presents his case using a historical perspective. This is not wishful thinking, but thinking based on historical fact as recorded in God's own word. In verse 47 and 48, Paul connects Adam to the earth and all human beings following him to the earth and the dust of the earth. He connects the second man, Christ, to heaven and all who have been redeemed by him to him and their eternal life in his presence. The key word in the last verse of this paragraph, verse 49, is image. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Image, this word, means likeness. Now, throughout history, all Adam's descendants have borne and continue to bear his image, being made from the dust of the earth, possessing the frailty common to all people. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is referring to the exalted Christ who ascended into heaven in his glorified body. Through his resurrection... Christ gives us the promise that we shall bear his likeness, his image, to which we will be conformed.
Union with Christ makes this possible. To bear, which is in the future tense, the image of Christ, points to our coming bodily resurrection. Paul in this verse, you see, is not exhorting us to lead holy lives in conformity to Christ's pattern. Not here in this verse. Instead, he's providing the foundational teaching of what will be true of us when we are resurrected. The exhortation comes in the last verse of this chapter. As usual, Paul knows what we must know and trust in first before he exhorts us to follow through with obedience and action. So what Paul is doing here in our passage, in which there is no exhortation, is teaching us that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. The fact that his body is in heaven is our assurance that we too shall be like him and with him eternally. Are we assured in these truths? Does it calm your fears, refocus your thoughts, strengthen your hope, increase your love? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God Almighty, thank you for the way you have used your servant, Paul, to explain how important it is to know who we are in Christ and what he has done for us, including the fact that he will raise us to be with you the rest of eternity, and that our raised body will be like Christ's raised body. Oh God, we thank you for this truth. Help us apply it in every area of our lives. Our benediction this morning is from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Two verses that probably have grown in their importance and meaning to us during the last month and a half. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.